Good singing. And I wanted to say thank you to Jamie for playing and one of our newest members. You may be seated. Edward, come ahead and preach for us this evening. Almost 37 years ago, I left South Africa, the land of my birth, uh, to come to America. Well, actually, first went to England, came here three years after leaving South Africa, and promised myself I'd never go back. But it's summer there now. <laughs> and it looks like we're in for a really bad winter here. So I'm just saying, it's very tempting. I'm going to break all my promises and might just go in summer there. Um, let's see, we've been talking about, for the, now this is the fifth message, uh, the normal Christian life. Uh, our first message, we talked about the need to be as motivated as the Apostle Paul was in his walk with God, uh, because walking with God in an evil world uh, where the deck is stacked against us, the God of this world doesn't like us very much, it takes an intentional focus. And so uh, we need to be highly motivated. Then we talked about a key component of our walk, uh, to intentionally live in the reality of our new life and ignore the seeming reality of our earthly life, which, of course, is more real to us than our new life. And so we, live, we need to intentionally live beyond the reality of what we're surrounded by every day. Uh, that was followed by looking at two pillars of the normal Christian life, an understanding of the power of the blood, the necessity of the blood of Christ, that blood spilt on the cross, and the second pillar, the cross itself, uh, where we were put to death. We're going to talk quite a bit about that again. There'll be quite a bit of repetition in this message because the, the crucial truths that we're addressing are so important and it's so outside the realm of our daily thought that we need to remind ourselves again and again, hammer the point home uh, so that we really do understand what God expects of us, what God has provided for us to live victoriously in uh, a life that he sees as normal and that we might look at as impossible. So we're going to talk about growing towards normal. Let's pray and we'll get right into the message. Thank you, Father, for uh, bringing us together here again. Uh, thank you for this place, for, above all, your wonderful word, uh, and then your presence in our midst. What a privilege it is, Lord, to be host to the Holy Spirit of the living God, who promised that where two or three of us gather together in his name, that he will be in our midst. Lord, we welcome you into our midst. We ask you to bless everything we say and do. And in everything we say and do, may the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, be glorified. Amen. Living the normal Christian life requires personal and spiritual motivation to overcome the deforming attraction of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And they work constantly to reduce us to the status of Christians in name only. We don't need to be those people because the world is full of them anyway. Our motivation to rise above sin's hold on us is often generated by some sort of personal crisis. 
Uh, the Apostle Paul was confronted on the road to Damascus and uh, had to admit that he was spiritually wretched and poor and blind and naked. David was confronted by the truth of his great sin. Daniel was confronted by the conditions of his banishment to Babylon. And of course, Peter was confronted by his betrayal of Jesus Christ. These were personal crises in the lives of each of these people. And although they came at different times and in different ways, the result was the same in each case. It drove them towards God. Their experiences are often our experiences. Experiencing personal crisis doesn't guarantee growth towards spiritual maturity, but is often God's instrument to hasten our spiritual growth. And I, I harp on this point because uh, it's so easy for us to be caught by surprise when everything in our life doesn't work exactly according to our plan. Uh, when disaster strikes or illness strikes or some other uh, negative thing happens to us, something we see as negative, and we wonder why. The temptation to ask why is so great. We have to understand God's overall purpose. God uses crisis as an instrument to assist or hasten our spiritual growth in the same way that Wesia puts fertilizer on his field after he's plowed it. He wants those little seeds to pop up and grow. Well, that's often what trials and crises do in our life. Growing towards a normal Christian life is not a gift we receive like salvation, but a process we accept of discovering and pursuing the reality of a spiritual life that is far beyond anything we're familiar with. We can't even imagine what it's like. We read about it in the Bible. But to try and bring it into our consciousness is very difficult. Foundational to our discovery is an appreciation, as we've seen, of the blood of Christ and the cross of Christ. And a few weeks ago, I talked about the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin is a work that only God can perform. Our fellowship with God comes always and only through the shed blood of Christ and is never based on what we do or don't do to begin and sustain our fellowship with him. We should never place any value on our performance. God is always and only interested in our faith, in his performance on our behalf. Then there's the cross. Just as we need the blood for our forgiveness, blood to wash us clean, so we need the cross for deliverance from our sin nature. Our history as descendants of the first Adam, we spoke about this last week, ends with the cross and the death of the last Adam. So I think that whole concept is, actually it's a truth, it's not a concept, it's just wonderful what God has done to provide for us this new life. A new history begins with the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the second man. The first man, Adam, failed. The second man will never fail. And we're part of his family, the founder of an entirely new race of humans, as declared in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ, 
He is a new creature or a new creation. All things, old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That is a statement of fact. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, your old life is dead and buried, and everything in your life is new. It just doesn't seem that way. But hopefully as you walk with God over time, that truth becomes more and more real to you. That new life is a miracle so deep and so profound that we can't grasp it all at once. We must grow into it, grow towards what is normal for a Christian. So let's look then at the four steps to normal. And uh, we need look to Romans chapter 6, one of those key chapters in the Bible, uh, because it outlines clearly and methodically the process by which God's children in Jesus Christ may experience the transforming purity and power of resurrection life as a practical reality. There's nothing theoretical about being a Christian. It's intensely practical. It's just totally foreign to us, which is what makes it difficult for us. So the process of heading towards normal is, unfolds in four steps. We see in chapter 6, verse 3, the first one is knowing, knowing our position in Christ. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Verse 9, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. This is something we have to know as the very first step we take towards God. We've got to know that this is real. It's true and it's real and it's right here in the Bible. The second step then is to act as if we know it's true. It's, sorry, act on what we know to be true. And that is reckoning. Verse 11, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. So it tells us, know that Christ, uh, our old man is crucified. Know that Christ being raised from the dead won't die again. Uh, death has no more dominion over him. He says, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. When last did you sit down and reckon that? Uh, we'll say a bit more about that in a moment. The next step is yielding, um, presenting ourselves to God as new creatures. Verse 13, neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. What a fantastic statement. As those that are alive from the dead, just as Jesus Christ was resurrected from death into new life, so we are resurrected from death into new life. And notice he doesn't say you will be. He says you are. It's a fact. But it's a fact that has to become real in our consciousness, in our experience, in our practice. And the last step then, oh, sorry, did I read verse 16? Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. That's an important verse. What it means is when the devil comes to you with a temptation, he has a sin, uh, doesn't it look good? Don't you want to try this? 
our response to him is being is to say, "No, I'm dead. Sorry, I'm, I've yielded myself to God. I can't yield myself to that sin." Um, that's how we overcome sin. It's got to be a conscious declaration of what is real in Scripture, and it takes practice and it takes time. I, please don't think that I'm intimating that any of this is, you can learn it just like that. Uh, this is a process. The last step then is growing, growing in that process, bearing fruit as we walk in the Spirit. Verse 22, but now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. That's the growth that follows the knowing, the reckoning, and the yielding. The essential first step is knowing. We cannot enjoy justification, that wonderful word that means just as if I never sinned, or just as if I'm always sinless in God's eyes, which is true. We cannot enjoy justification if we do not see Jesus bearing our sins on the cross. Now, every one of us here who is saved, born again, we know this is true. We know because the Holy Spirit showed it to us. That's how we, we got saved. If I ask Jesus Christ to save me, to come into my life, he's going to wash away my sins. You know that for a fact. Your sins are paid for, and you're on your way to heaven. The next step is not quite as easy, because um, the justification is what Jesus does. We see, our, see him bearing our sins on the cross. He did that. But we cannot enjoy then sanctification, which is the next step, if we don't see him bearing us on the cross. He bore our sins on the cross, but he also bore us on the cross. What is true of our forgiveness for sin is also true of our deliverance from sin. The work is done. God has put us all in Christ so that when Christ was crucified, we were crucified also. When we pray, Lord, please help me to overcome my tendency to sin. Please crucify me. Crucify my old nature. What we really are asking for is a deeper understanding, a revelation of what God has already done for us. Our crucifixion and death to sin is an accomplished fact. Our struggle is to make it real to ourselves. And the struggle is designed to bring us closer to God who has made it real and will make it real to you and me personally. And the struggle is everything. God's purpose is to teach us the difference between our way and his way. Our way is to try to suppress sin. God's way is to remove the sinner. A total different approach to the problem. For this to become real to us, we must know it as a fact not as intellectual knowledge, but as an opening of the eyes of the heart, in just the same way that our eyes are open to know that our sins are forgiven. God reveals this to us by his Spirit. We may not feel it, we may not understand it, but we know it is true when we see it. And if we turn to Ephesians, we'll see the Apostle Paul praying just that for these Baby Christians, 
uh, verse 15 in Ephesians chapter 1. He says this, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, notice he's talking yet to brand new Christians. I heard that, that you all got saved, is basically what he's saying. I've just heard you got saved. Now I've got something to say to you. I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, and I look at what he, he's asking them or for them. It's exactly what we're talking about this evening. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is in my prayers, the Father of glory may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who do believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. And then look at chapter 2 and verse 6. And hath raised us up together and has made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You may not believe it, you may not feel it, but tonight as you sit here, your spirit is in heaven seated with Jesus in heavenly places far above this world, in that realm of perfection and God's power and God's presence. That's where he says we are. And the implication is, now I'd like you to start living like that's true. It is true. But you need to know it's true and live that way. And again, I acknowledge it's not easy. Verse, we looked at chapter 2 and verse 6. You are seated there. We are seated there. It's a great thing to see that we are in Christ. Think of the futility of struggling to get in a treasure room where you are already located. It's absurd to, be, to beg to be let in. But only those who realize that they're already in the room aren't going to waste their energy trying to get in. They're going to point all their energy to enjoying the treasures in that room. Yes, I'm here already. Wow, look at this place. It's wonderful. Well, most of our brothers and sisters are at the door banging on, please let me in. No, you're in already. You just need to know it. If we had more revelation... We'd have fewer prayers and more praises. We expend a lot of energy praying for ourselves because we don't know or don't understand what God has done for us. So the second step is reckoning. First know and then reckon. So now that you know, just in case you didn't know that up to this point, in the matter of sin, we need not work to die. We need not wait to die. We are dead. The Bible says it in so many words, we are dead to sin. We need only to recognize what the Lord has already done, praise him for it, and live accordingly. The Bible describes acting on what we know as reckoning, just like an accountant adds a column of numbers and then totals all those numbers up and comes up with an answer. In exactly the same way, we are supposed to reckon to add up the facts of our salvation and arrive at the correct answer. We reckon ourselves dead to sin, not so that we may become dead, but because we are dead. 
But we must never forget that this is only true in Christ. If you look at yourself, you will be convinced death is not there. It's a question of faith in our Savior, in his word, and in his work. And so that brings us to the third step. Faith, believing this. We first reckon it. Yep, there are all the facts. Okay, now I've got to believe those facts. Faith is my acceptance of God's fact. Those who say God can, or God may, or God must, or God will, don't necessarily believe at all. Faith always says God has done it. It's done. I don't have to beg God to do it. He's done it. The two greatest facts in history are these. Our sins are dealt with by the blood of Christ, and we ourselves are dealt with by the cross of Christ. The facts we count on are the facts we will live by. If these facts are real to us, that's how we're going to live. We believe these facts when we see them with our spiritual eyes. We must decide if we will live by what we can see and touch with our natural eyes, our daily experience of this present evil world, or by the mighty effect that we are in Christ and see ourselves there. I must say, I've spent a lot of time meditating on trying to imagine myself seated in heavenly places, and I haven't quite got it right yet, but it's a lot of fun trying. And you know, it's not egotistical to do that, because the Bible tells us that. Just, just understand it, see it, believe it. The Bible is very clear on the question of faith. It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, that famous quote from Hebrews 11 and verse 1. We are also told that the things that we can't see are eternal. That is, things that are real in heaven and from a heavenly perspective. In 2 Corinthians 4.18, those things are eternal. They're the real things. Just because we can't see into that realm with our physical eyes doesn't mean or doesn't detract in the slightest from the reality of them. You know, a blind man who cannot see color doesn't affect the reality of color. Green is green whether he sees it or not. And we are the blind man. God says, this is reality. And we say, I can't see a thing. And Paul prays, oh, I pray that he would open your eyes. I pray that the Spirit would cause you to understand, to grasp this fact. How would that revolutionize our lives? We may say that faith substantiates, makes real and present in our experience the things we hope for. This is what, that's faith's job. The things that normally exist in God's eternal realm, not in our finite world. We bring those things into our realm simply by taking time to discover what they are and know what they are, and consider how they impact us. We do this by reading God's word, by listening to that word preached, by prayer, by meditation, and by practice. One of the greatest tragedies, 
and I guess it is a tragedy of the Christian life for most Christians, is we're just too busy to stop and think. Uh, to take the time. Be, until we take the time to, what I'm talking about here, to actually think about it, to imagine it, to find confirmation for it in God's word, and then to think through, well, how would that impact me? What would my behavior, what would it feel like? What would it look like? How do I get a hold of it? Well, the bottom line for all of this is just get close to God. You know, if you seek God's power, you'll never get it. Seek God, and his power comes with him. If you seek God's holiness, you're just going to try and keep a bunch of rules and regulations. Seek God, his holiness comes with him. If you seek anything of God, seek him. And it's a package deal. Everything else comes with him, with his presence, with his fullness in your life. The more we practice, the easier it becomes. However, if we do not know and believe the facts of what God has wrought by the cross, they remain as real as ever, but they are of little value to us. Remember, the cross has put us to death. The Bible says that God's worth is truth. The Bible also says that the devil is a liar. Your adversary who says none of this is true. Hey, by the way, there's a bright, shiny object. Wouldn't you like to have that? Forget that boring stuff. That It's just too hard to figure out. Here, take this. That's a fight that you and I have every day of our lives. And at some stage, we've got to come to a place and say, no, wrong address, sorry. The guy that used to live there left long ago. He's now seated in heavenly places. I'm not interested in that. The Bible says the devil is a liar. Who will you choose to believe? The fourth step, the last step, is growing. Climbing the steps of believing and knowing and reckoning and accepting God's truth is like ascending a staircase where each step is twice the height of the previous one. It's not easy. But this is the way we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. God has designed it this way because the, the truths we learn by struggle become our truths. Oh, write that down. Repeat it to yourself. Remind yourself the next, next time you're in a time of crisis, a time of struggle, a time when nothing seems to be going right. The truths we learn by struggle become our truths. It's mine. I was in a crisis and I reached out to God and I read his word and I believed what he told me there and he brought me through. Yes, I know it's true. We grow spiritually by what we make our own through our own experience, not just because somebody else told us, even if that somebody else is God. He's told us all these wonderful things in this book. And we don't believe them until we live them. And we live them by intentionally living them. And you know the best way to live them is when you are desperate. And you look in here for, I need an answer. And you find it. And it's real. Our spiritual fruitfulness or growth is made possible when we obtain or get salvation through Jesus Christ. That is, 
by what he alone can do. We attain, first we obtain, we get, and then we attain or arrive at fruitfulness by what we must do with his help. In other words, we must resolve that we will climb the staircase of righteousness with God by staying close to him and drawing on his strength. Because, folks, you can't do it on your own. The steps we must take are not easy. I think I've said that now a dozen times. To understand just how difficult the climb may be, carefully read the Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Matthew chapters 5 to 7 and grade your performance against God's standard for living the normal Christian life. That's it. It's spelled out there in detail. You live that, you're living the normal Christian life. That's his standard. Or go back to the Old Testament and see in Exodus chapters 20 to 24 the standard for living the normal Israelite life. Note that in both cases, Old Testament and New Testament, only a 100% pass rate is acceptable to God. You've got to get it right 100% of the time. In other words, you have to be perfect. The task is impossible for us. We are merely human. But folks, the joy, part of the joy of the Christian life is not looking at this challenge and just falling apart saying it's impossible. I, can't. I wish someone had warned me about that before I got saved. I never would have got saved if I knew it was going to be like this. That's silly. Instead, look at the challenge and understand what God is doing in your life and understand the prize. It's worth it. Nobody who's lived this life and begins to taste of those heavenly things and begins to feel that fruit growing in them, nobody would ever say, ah, oh, it hasn't been worth it. Just the contrary. It's wonderfully life-transforming. The task is impossible, but if you're a born-again child of God, Christ in you is your hope of attaining such glory. According to Colossians 1.27, and again, I remind you of Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. He shows us how it's done. That one simple little passage, three little verses explain exactly how to do it. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is the rest of salvation. Come to me. And then he says, take my yoke upon you. Now that you're mine, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. That is the normal Christian life. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. It's not that hard when he does the work in us, and we merely cooperate with him. It's amazing how easy that becomes. So, I leave you with the thought, take the yoke he offers you, walk with him, rejoice in your experience of new, victorious, normal Christian life, even when it looks like it's impossible. Let's pray. Father.